0: knowledge is way more important than data because knowledge is the path to the right data. And it's way faster to just ask somebody who understands their products and their category to get me what I need. And they just send it directly to you rather than sifting through for hours and hours in the black hole of the internet.
1: Welcome to the Construction Disruption Podcast, where we uncover the future of building and remodeling. Join us as we explore an industry that is constantly evolving with new products, new designs, new practices, and new technologies. From builders to remodelers to executives, as well as those sometimes with completely outside perspectives. Each episode of Construction Disruption meets with forward thinkers as well as those in the know from the construction industry who share their unique insights. Construction Disruption is created and sponsored by Isaiah Industries, a manufacturer of specialty metal riffing systems and other building materials. I'm Todd Miller of Isaiah Industries, and my co-host is Seth Heckeman, our sales manager. Our producer is Ryan Bell, and Ethan Young is here in a support role as well. So I want to go off script a tiny bit here today, Seth, before we get started or as we get started. Um, here I am uh, surrounded. I'm kind of a – on the young end, I always like to point out of baby boomers. I, I don't really associate myself as a boomer much. I know you love calling me one. Um, the, the only spectrum you're on the young end of at this point. Well, that's so. that's very true. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Uh, but – So I'm kind of on the young end of spectrums, young end of boomers. I really am. Um, Everyone surrounding me here today, uh, here at our place, is a a millennial, uh, generation Y, I guess. Um, So it's interesting. I'm surrounded by folks younger myself than myself, and you know what that means. That you're old. That I'm old. That's exactly right. Um, but it also, interestingly, means I know a lot about all you guys. So I'm looking around here, and Ryan, I've known him since he was about three. I'm sure he doesn't even remember me. Um, I've known Ethan since he was six. I've known you since you were probably ten. So I know a lot about you guys. In fact, I want to share something that I know about Seth that he probably doesn't share very often, um, share with everybody. Seth used to play the bassoon. Um, he was a very good bassoon player. Um, he wanted to play the bassoon in the marching band, but that double reed kept jamming into his
2: palate with every step. So, but he's a bassoon player. And that would like to tell us
1: about that.
2: Um, Old man, I think you're confusing this with the time you were called a buffoon. So uh, oh, oh, okay. yeah, yeah, you might be right. You may be right on that.
1: I do forget these things.
2: Okay, no bassoon. Never mind. Um, anyway, and this, this is now the dad joke edition of the Construction Disruption <laughs> <laughs> Podcast. There we go. We're,
0: we're starting off with two truths that align. <laughs> yeah, there
1: you go. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, our guest today is Evan Troxell, um, a great leader from the architectural world. Oh, Seth, I'm curious. Um, we get a lot of architectural drawings in here and, you know, you've seen a lot in your years here.
2: You ever seen the architectural drawings that kind of challenge you? <laughs> a few, absolutely. So a lot to, a lot to get your head around, but, uh, it's, it's always fun. Um, you know, our business is mainly re-roofing. So it's kind of exciting when we're working with a project on the ground up and especially, uh, with, forward-thinking architects who are doing new and innovative things and uh, creative designs, it, it does add a fun dynamic to the project.
1: I know I love it. I love seeing some of the great new designs. And it's amazing how over the years I've seen the designs. We're working primarily with residential stuff, of course, but um, how I've seen the design trends change even over the years of my career. And that's uh, always fascinated me um, quite a bit. So it's really fun for me, actually, Evan, to have you here today, because I think I might have mentioned this to you. You share the same first name with my son, um, who uh, shout out for him. His birthday is this weekend. So we'll actually get to go see see him um gotta say the only reason my son got the name evan though was i was insistent on a name that either had a v or a z in it i just wanted that hard consonant last letter of the alphabet sound and my wife simply wasn't going for ezekiel or zebediah so we ended up with evan was how we ended there Uh, But to introduce him, Evan Troxell is a California licensed architect, um, receiving his degree from California State Polytechnic University in 1997. Um, Evan himself is absolutely no stranger to podcasting, um, hosting ArcaSpeak since 2013, uh, which is a podcast that discusses all things related to architecture and design. Um, And then, not able to get enough of this glamorous world of podcasting, um, he started a second podcast, TRXL, in 2020, uh, which talks specifically about technology and the architectural profession. Um, he was also a principal with HMC Architects in Ontario, California, for many years. And uh, currently, he is the Archi- architectural community Uh, director for TECT, T-E-C-T, an app that provides architects, engineers, and specifiers with real-time access to product information and experts, which we're going to hear more about that, and I'm excited to hear more about it. Um, Evan, thank you so much for joining us today on Construction Disruption. It's a pleasure to have you here.
0: Yeah, my pleasure as well. Thanks for the invitation. I'm looking forward to the conversation.
1: Sounds good. Well, before we get too far into the weeds and muck of witty conversation, I have to ask, um, what attracted you to architecture as a career choice? I mean, is that something you always knew you wanted to pursue? I, it's something I hear sometimes kids say. Is that kind of who you were?
0: Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, you always, in my line of work, especially in the podcasting where you kind of hear a lot of origin stories from a different architect's. It was always Legos, always Legos. I think um, for me, I think it was actually not as much Legos. I was always very much into art and drawing, kind of technical drawing, I would say, more than just, you know, artistic drawing for if you don't want to make a distinction. But, uh, you know, so I always had like a grid, a piece of grid paper. (laughs) And I was always drawing on that. Um, Funny enough, when I went to architecture school, one of the one of the first kind of aha moments I had was when the professor said, you know, they did a disservice to you in kindergarten when they taught you how to color inside the lines. And that was really started starts to forms people's idea about what art is and when art and, and it, it takes it away from it being a true expression coming from the inside out. You're you're basically conforming to somebody else's lines. Right. So wow. that that made a lot of sense at that moment. I had never thought about it like that before, but. Um, so, so all those years of drawing on grid paper, I, it's not too dissimilar from coloring inside the lines. Right? Like yeah, you're, sure. you're drawing to scale, you're, you're drawing at angles that are, you know, 90 degrees to each other, or you're connecting dots that are already on the page. Um, but I remember sitting in the front yard of our house in Tahoe and playing stacking rocks and building Flintstone houses, you know, for, for lack of a a better term. And for those of you who know who the Flintstones are (laughs) and, uh, also just constantly remodeling the house. Like it was a project house. And so my parents bought it new, we did additions, we did remodels, and I learned how to use tools and we were very much do it yourselfer And so I had a What I thought was an interesting understanding of what architecture was. And then, like I said, I went to architecture school and it just blew blew my mind. It was way different than any of that. It was very much more of a kind of a merging of art and science and learning how to how to solve problems, how to take in tons and tons of inputs and synthesize what nobody could you know, specifically say what they wanted, because a lot of the ideas that come through the discovery process of architecture uh, are they they fight each other. Right. A lot of these ideas, you know, I want this and I want this, but those two things don't go together. And it's the architect's job to really figure out a way to synthesize often very disconnected or maybe even kind of, you know, confrontational ideas, especially between different stakeholders at the table to come up with a buildable solution, right? Because it's going to be one thing in the end. So that journey to get there is uh, it's a really fantastic process and it's kind of daunting for a lot of people, but that's exactly what architects are trained to do.
1: Wow, good stuff. Well, it's interesting as I look at your career, I mean, you've also always kind of gravitated towards sort of the tech side of things. I mean, you know, you've been a designer, but then you've also gone the podcasting route and now you're with the the tech app. Um, Which of those have you enjoyed most or has it been kind of a blending of the opportunity to do everything? I am definitely
0: one of those people who doesn't have a very small number of things that I'm interested in. I'm interested in a very large number of things. Uh, I've always been like that. Um, And so, yeah, I can't really pick one as the most interesting or even necessarily meaningful. I feel like the broader experience that I can have, uh, the more lives that I can live at one time, (laughs) because I only get the one, I think that just makes me a, a more informed and experienced person, which brings more to design. And so whether that's the actual design of an architectural building, or if it's the design of a process or the design of an app or um, a workflow, I feel like all of that is kind of the output of this wide range of experiences. So and technology has just always been there as kind of this, you know, ever-evolving, fast-paced, which really matches the way my brain is wired. Uh, and so I'm, I'm constantly learning. There's, n- You can never learn it all, right? It's like try opening Photoshop and learning what all the – you don't. You learn like 10% of what the, the tools are, that you, and you use them all the time. Uh, same thing for Revit. Same thing for – AutoCAD or any other architectural or surrounding program out there. It's like you need to know enough to get the stuff done, but there's always more to learn. There's way more out there that you could always just go down a different direction and and pique your curiosity in some other way. So it's hard to explain, I guess, but it's it's all influencing me.
2: Uh, very cool. I love that that line, live as many lives in this one life as, as we can. So keeps yeah. things interesting, and I, I love that problem-solving perspective too. I'm curious when you, uh, that synthesization, synthesis Whoa, of, the, what, <laughs> of the problem, <laughs> uh, any particular projects or favorite projects come to mind uh, that just stick out as um, fun experiences where, where that you were yeah. able to solve those problems for folks?
0: There's two projects where, and it's funny because the the way that these stick in my mind is because of the way the client talked about it and the way that they explained it in such simple terms. Um, the first one was just uh, kind of like what you guys are talking about, where you go in and r- you're re-roofing uh, an existing Project. This was a reskinning of a building because the old skin in this particular piece of facade, all the steel tiebacks were failing after all these years. Mm-hmm. And so it was this travertine marble facade that went up the center of the building right over the entry. And these pieces of marble were going to fall off and like probably hurt somebody, right? So we got the job to come in and reskin that piece of the building. And, you know, long story short, they wanted to put up exactly what was taken down except as maybe a tile instead, right? So it was a little bit lighter weight or something. And we said, man, you've got a huge opportunity here to show people who you are and talk about your identity, right? As far as sorry, my lights just blinked. Um, Talk about like, you know, express yourself on this building. It wasn't they didn't build the building. They moved in as tenants. They bought the building at one point. And so this was an opportunity and I said, you know, what can you guys tell me about yourselves that isn't on your website? And we went through this Mm -hmm. kind of discovery process. And I went, I took that information. I said, you know, I want to show you guys some options. And I went back and I showed them several options. And they picked one of them um, that spoke to, they were a transportation company. We spoke about movement. We talked about like why they existed. And we tried to bring that through in the design of the facade by having lighting and the motion of the building, even though it didn't physically move, it looked like it was moving. Mm. Um, And so at the end of all that and they got the approval and they built it and they just said, you know, like, we would have never, ever thought that we could have done something like this. Right. And so that's that process that we went through together. And that really stood out to me because like they own it and they own that story and they tell everybody who comes to that building about that story. Right. And that to me, is what is the difference between architecture and buildings. It's like there is a difference out there and, and there's a story with architecture. And then the other one real quickly was, was a, a school campus, a K K twelve, K through six campus that I designed and everybody in the community wanted to see this, this school uh, it's called Clearwater elementary and it's in Paris, California. And um, yeah, so not Paris, France. I, I'm not an international architect, <laughs> but um, the, the superintendent was the one who was going to the board meetings and telling the community what the school was like. And they said, when can we see it? We just want to see it. They wanted to see the renderings. And, and he, he was intentionally holding it back, right? Because as soon as you show people what this thing's going to look like, there's immediately like a bunch of hands going up and concerns raised. And, oh, what about this? And, what? and he's like, we're not going to do that, right? But he, all he said was, it's the school you've always dreamed of. And I was like, okay, like wow. this guy's a believer. <laughs> wow. We are on the same team. Everything that we've done to this point, he is all in. And I think it comes down to like that ownership of an idea along the journey that really makes those stories live on way beyond that design and, you know, delivery process that architects are a, a part of. And then we move on to the next one.
2: That's super cool. You know, I have the perspective of architects, you know, sit in their, uh, their own office by themselves, dreaming up, you know, these designs, but hearing those stories of you connecting, you know, with your clients and leading them, there, and really making them client centric and cultivating that emotional connection. Uh, there's a lot we can learn from that and the power of that for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Good stuff. I'm kind of curious, switching gears here a tiny bit, um, what do you see as some of the biggest challenges facing the design community today? And how do you see those challenges maybe manifesting themselves um, in coming years?
0: There's a bunch of ways I could go with this. I think there's a lot of challenges that we face as an industry, especially as kind of disparate pieces and lack of trust between different pieces of the industry, right? Oh, wow. So, like you guys said, like you'll get a set of drawings and you're like, what the heck is going on here, right? Yeah, it's, we've never and, thought that. And,
2: and, <laughs> you yeah, said sure. it, it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I've seen the way those drawings are treated on the job site. It's like everyone's walking on them and stuff, yeah. Um, but that, you know, that's a that lack of trust is, it's there, right? So I'd say that's a big piece of it. And I think a lot of it is based on architects, not necessarily reaching out enough to say, what do you need in this set of drawings? Rather there, there's a lot of other pieces at play in there. There's, there's a standard of care that we're held to as licensed architects or registered architects, depending on where you're, where you're practicing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're also the purpose of our deliverable is to get agency approval. It's not, and it's going to be the documents from which the, the building is built from. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think that's a big one. It's just this disconnect. And I think that that like one of the symptoms of that is lack of trust. Um, But it's because they're not working together at the same time to solve the problems that are ultimately going to become the solution. It's a handoff process. And so it's like they don't know what they're talking about while they don't know what they're talking about. And architects were not allowed to talk about means and methods. We're not allowed to talk about, you know, we, we want to think about sequencing when we're doing the design, but do we really know? Probably not, right? So we're taking our best guess at a lot of things. And there have been delivery models that have been dreamed up to, to basically solve that problem, like integrated project delivery, right? Where everybody does sit around the same table at the same time and hack at those prog- problems and those challenges and work them out. But for the most part, with the the traditional ways of delivering projects with design, bid, build, uh, it's a it's disconnected, and so I think that that disconnection has led to lack of communication.
1: Hmm.
0: It's led to people making lots of assumptions, and then not really able to deliver well, deliver on when it comes to it, um, and we know that a design is never really done, you know, as architects, like we just are forced to stop at some point, And then that building needs to get built. And then that problem solving continues all the way through construction. Right. And mm-hmm. uh, a lot of owners don't want to pay for construction administration for an architect to be on site, to help solve those problems when they can get solved so that that design intent is actually realized. Um, and so then a contractor is put in the position of saying, I'm going to figure this out. And you could totally forget that design intent because I'm not going to build it that way. Right. Because of this kind of mismatch of communication and, and expectations. So, man, there's a whole lot there. But I think it, this the disconnection between the different pieces of our industry has led to a lot of other symptoms, which are all kind of revolving around that really big problem of lack of connection.
2: Interesting. It sounds really familiar. Uh, this week, in fact, we had a project out to bid. Uh, happened to be a federal project, and we're hearing from the architect that they're going to be taking uh, possession of materials in September, and we're hearing from the contractors bidding the roof saying there's no chance, in heck, this job is happening before next spring because of all the other yeah. factors. Uh, so that communication and uh, working together, if we can kind of cross those uh, practice boundaries and... Uh, work together through the project, it would go a long way, I'm sure. Practice
0: boundaries is a really nice way to say it. I would say like it's a divide, it's a chasm. <laughs> <laughs> We've got to build a bridge. Right? That mm-hmm. that and that's that's what I'm interested in doing. That's why I've moved into the technology space. And because I don't think you can effectively work on the building industry as a whole when you're in the building industry. It's really hard to kind of step back and take those big picture points of view and start to solve problems that apply to everybody. Otherwise, if you're just doing it inside your own company, okay, that's great. But who else are you going to bring along with you so that we can all move forward together? Mm. That's really been what I felt is a, a huge uh, challenge and a, and a charge worth worth going into in my career.
1: So it, it sounds a little bit uh, – I want to hear more about the tech app, and that's T-E-C-T, um, that you're involved with. It, it sounds a little bit like that was partly an attempt to try to bring, you know, product suppliers and the design community and contractors closer together. Am I correct? And can you tell us a little totally. bit about that?
0: Yeah. Tech is a it's a platform. Like we've all seen how platforms on the Internet are are kind of creating a place for those communities to come together, right? And participation is key. So we have a what we call a two-sided community, right? We've got both sides at the table, manufacturers and architects, the design profession, let's call mm-hmm. it, not just specifically architects. Uh, and really the, our goal is just to facilitate communication because that, again, like going back to that, you know, what we're disconnected. Um, and I think, you know, as, competition has gotten more fierce as logistics have gotten more difficult and supply chain and on the manufacturer side, those are, those are huge constraints. Um, the way that manufacturers sell to contractors is and should be completely different than how they sell to design professionals. I mean, something just to make it easy to understand, uh, a lot of building product manufacturer, sales reps sell to architects but architects don't buy anything, (laughs) right? The light bulb just goes off. Oh yeah, like we specify it. It's important to get that information early in the design process so that decisions can be made in the best, most efficient way possible. And then that design intent ultimately can be realized if that's happened, if there's not these last minute, 11th hour changes happening on the job site, right? So the more informed we can get architects and design teams early in the process by getting interactive with the supply side, that's fantastic. But you also have to stop selling to architects because they're not buying. You just have to provide what they need, when they need it, answer the questions. And through that process, we feel like we are in the right place to develop trust over the long term so that there can be relationships. Because what I really want as a designer is I want a go-to person that I can call and say, hey, what's the answer? And even if it's not your product, you should have enough information, you know, hopefully it is, but if you don't, point me in the right direction and smooth out my path, and I'm going to come back to you again, and again, and again, because we are starting a relationship over the long haul. So that's our goal with TACT.
2: Very cool. So that relationship and communication, is that uh, those principles and values, is that really what separates it from some of the other products out there, like uh, RCAT or some of these other just online libraries of random spec sheets and things?
0: Yeah, great question. We are not a product directory and we are not a catalog of any type. We are a place for, to connect the dots between, we say we're the shortest path between questions and answers. Mm-hmm. And that answer is in a person's head, right? Because we, we distinguish between knowledge and data data is what you're talking about right data is a pdf it's mm-hmm. probably an outdated pdf <laughs> right <laughs> That's, uh, it's and the detail i'm looking for is in page 38 of the 300 page pdf and it's really hard for me to find every manufacturer's website is different uh, a lot of times if i just want to talk to somebody i got to fill out a i got to give up my privacy by filling out a form to even get a call back and then they want to know what the project is and where it's located so that they can, you know, do everything that they can to get inside the spec. Like that process, that's totally broken as far as we're concerned. But everybody accepts it as the status quo. Um, and we just continue to work in that. So our, our goal at Tech is to say, no, knowledge is way more important than data because knowledge is the path to the right data. And it's way faster to just ask somebody who understands their products and their category to get me what I need. And they just send it directly to you rather than sifting through for hours and hours in the black hole of the internet. I, like I say, like you go on a Google search, you don't know where you're going to end. Right. And and most likely you're going to be shopping for shoes. You don't even know how (laughs) you ended up shopping for shoes when you started off looking for handrails, but it happens all the time, right? Because it's full of distractions. So we're trying to focus on the building industry or we are focusing on the building industry, but we're also trying to c- connect people's and their question, you know, design professionals and their questions to experts with their answers.
1: So your clients are both architectural firms, design firms and manufacturers, then, if I understand? Yes. OK. Yeah,
0: yeah. So manufacturers are on the platform. Architects are the ones engaging with them. They have control over their privacy, they have control over the interaction, because a lot of times, you know, early in the design process, all I know is that I need to, I'm starting really big picture, and I need really big, vague answers to help me make decisions so that I can go down a path, but many sales reps treat that first interaction as a sales opportunity. And it's, I'm not there yet, man. Like, (laughs) I'm not ready to give you my email address, which has my firm in it, which, you know, or where the project is or anything like that. Um, And so, yeah, I just want to know, like, is this the right storefront system for this? Will it even work? Timeline-wise, will it even work? Ballpark cost-wise, will it even Mm -hmm. work? Then we can continue down that path if the answers work with what I need. So, yeah, I mean, that's a huge part of it, controlling my privacy, uh, and also we give them the ability to narrow down their search results by location, which nobody has done before. So if I am an architect in Southern California, but I'm doing a project in Idaho, there are going to be suppliers that only source products in that region, which are different from the one I practice in. Right. And and as a designer, especially like on the types of projects I've worked on, like higher ed and and K through 12, and I'll find a stainless steel handrail that I love that is coming out of Germany. And it's like, I'm never going to get it and I can't afford it. So how can I find that answer faster and say, who can I get that can supply to this region within a time and a cost that I can live with? So that's a that's a big part of what tech is doing, too. We're matching you up with location specifics, um, you know, within a city.
1: Wow. Definitely sounds like something that we need to know more about. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. I've been kind of interested in watching this. So a few months ago, we had added a live chat feature to our websites, which is staffed by one of our experts, not, you know, someone just trying to capture lead information or something. Uh Um, And we, even though our websites are not particularly architect friendly. I mean, they weren't, weren't really designed for that. They're more consumer driven. Um, we get a lot of architects on our live chat. And a lot of times they're asking those questions you're talking about, you know, these bigger picture ballpark. I mean, you know, not so much specific to our product, but but bigger picture. And, and we love being able to respond. And I often think yeah, you know, goodness. Yeah, you know, that has to be frustrating if they're having to search to find our little old residential-looking, you know, metal roofing website to ask those questions. So it sounds like you got the perfect answer of the better place for them to to get those answers. That's that's really neat.
0: Yeah, and how many times if you guys, it's not that you're wasting your time, but that's a good way to frame it. Is how many times have you fielded questions that ultimately? Your product will never make it into their project right? all the time, right? And so we also feel like we can save everybody time. Like we're not just saving the design professional time by connecting them with the right person immediately. We're saving your time too because you're not – because of the regional match that we're making, Mm -hmm. you're going to be – we want you to get 90% of the calls in your region, which is going to lead to more sales, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a huge goal of ours, uh, and we feel like that's what really sets us apart as well.
1: Wow. I'll be anxious to learn, follow up and learn, learn more about that. Happy to. Yeah.
0: yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's been really great and we've had a fantastic response. Awesome.
1: So was this something you developed and designed or, or. No, you...
0: I actually, I'm one of three in the company right now because okay. we're a, an early startup and we're, we're looking for, people who want to come along this journey and help us develop it into something that it needs to be like, again, we, we really take the stance of neutral facilitation, both uh-huh. from the manufacturer and the design team side. But my boss is the co-founder of the company. And it's his lifelong journey of, you know, he spent a decade working for a global product manufacturer. He owned his own global product manufacturing company. He's also an architect. So we we feel like, you know, you talked about Generations earlier, right? I'm a, I'm a, (laughs) I'm very much a Gen Xer, right? And Gen X is the bridge. It is the bridge generation between the millennials and the boomers. And like all of these different generations operate within the same firm of architects, right? There's five generations in the firm that I recently left. So how do we communicate just amongst ourselves? Like that's always been something that. I've really taken on to be one of the main charges in my career It's just bridging that communication in our own silo. Um, So that's what now I'm taking to the rest of the world. And and I felt like this is a worthy challenge, like this isn't a real sexy challenge, right? We're connecting design side to the supply side, but, uh, but man, it needs to happen. And we really see this as a long, long, you know, we call it three lifetimes, not three generations, but three lifetime project and we want to get it set off on the right foot so that's Uh we're starting here
1: i love it and and so appropriate for for our podcast because that's the exact things we want to talk about is what does construction look like in the future and this sounds perfect yeah you know it's going to be better that's our goal (laughs) that's great goal One of the biggest challenges that, you know, we see out there right now in construction, of course, is the shortage of labor um, in the construction industry. And, you know, frankly, I don't really see it getting any better. I mean, people for years said, well, it's because unemployment is so low and then suddenly unemployment was skyrocketed high and we still didn't have enough people out there. I'm just kind of curious, what how, what does the design community feel about that shortage and, and how do you see that as something that you have to respond to or, or you have to figure out how to deal with also because it impacts you too?
0: Yeah, so the lab, the skilled labor shortage is, is a huge challenge, right? And and it's not new. I mean, this is what, obviously, we've gone through decades now where knowledge work is deemed more of a utility for people than, you know, the blue-collar work, just right. to label it that, and, and you know, skilled tradesmen. Um, and, and coming from a, a family of building stuff ourselves... I don't really understand why, but I don't know why people want to sit at a desk all day long, every day, or sit in a cube all day long, every day, and not work with their hands. And I think a lot of architects are left shorthanded without that experience of knowing how things go together. Um, But it's true. A lot of them don't. Uh, and, And I think that's something that we always have to keep in mind is that the architecture that we design, not only is it for people, Right. It's not for advertising. It's not to go on the cover of the magazine like those are side effects of um, maybe that final outcome if mm-hmm. you're lucky. But it's for people and it is also built by hand. Right. And so that is a, a really important thing to always remember. So I personally I don't know how you solve this problem other than it has to happen in the education realm of putting importance back on doing things by hand or the importance of making things. Um, and as a maker myself, I really believe in that. We also deal with that on the knowledge work side of things, right? Like there is not enough people, there are not enough people to fill the positions that are needed to do the projects that need to be done. Um, especially with, you know, the coming uh, housing issues that are, you know, projections for 2050. I think it's like, we need to build a city the size of New York city every five weeks for the next 33 years. It's incredible how much building, like there's never been more of a demand than there is right now Hmm. for the built environment. Um, And that's just really regarding housing. So, and and it needs to be not, I don't even want to just say affordable housing, but you know, like accessible housing. Right. So um, architects have kind of always, you know, on a little bit of a tangent fallen on the, exclusive elite side of that and man like look what how much business we're leaving on the table with that business model if you really need 99 percent of the work that you do to be reproducible at scale and quickly um, there's a lot of opportunity out there to innovate in that realm and make that stuff happen but you know we like i said we can't We can't hire fast enough you guys can't even find the people to do it and so i think that's why we're seeing so much innovation happening around robotics and things like that is people are trying to solve that problem in other ways because i don't know how you attract people to that other than I mean, the salaries can be pretty incredible on the construction side of things, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I had to hire a plumber to come out and clean my drain, man. And it was like 20 minutes for 90 bucks. It's like, you can't really compete with that. Yeah. <laughs> when you need them, you need them, you know? And, and it's like, you know, you can work half a day and make as much money as I do sitting at a computer, you know, more than full time. So it's pretty incredible. And I just don't think it gets framed that way to a lot of people who are right. trying to pick a career and identify as something in their future, early on it's it's a conundrum that we're in for sure
1: very interesting
2: yeah i'm just curious you you keep talking about doing the satisfaction that comes from doing something with your hands and building are you still a yeah. DIYer around your place or how does that manifest for oh you? Yeah, yeah totally
0: totally yeah i i've this lab just right finished up a deck project in the backyard you know uh and it's got the fire pit and the trellis and i i learned how to weld about a decade ago so i do everything I can, possibly can myself. And it's partly because I'm a a little bit of a cheapskate, but also like, like there's a labor shortage. How am I going to find somebody to do what I want to be done on a schedule that makes sense for a cost that makes sense for me? So it's my wife warned me, you've got to hire someone to do this. And I didn't listen. So (laughs) (laughs) I did end up doing it myself and it was a lot of hard work. So very cool. But I do, I get a lot of satisfaction out of the final product. I mean, it's really rewarding.
1: So when you're involved with those projects, I mean, you're sometimes using products manufactured by by companies like us. And I know I've had a couple little projects at my house recently. And, you know, I'm following these instructions and actually some of them I've been very impressed by. They do a nice job. But just curious on any particular areas where you feel manufacturers are kind of missing the boat or ways that manufacturers could be better in terms of facilitating um good construction out there uh you
0: know i think a lot of manufacturers are just struggling to get noticed right and there's a Mm -hmm. lot of innovation happening but at the same time manufacturers don't speculate on what designers might want they don't make products hoping that somebody's going to buy them that are innovative they make stuff that they know is going to have a market more
1: more responsive i mean
0: if you're in the in the manufacturing business, like you're probably millions to tens of millions of dollars in. Right. Like that's just the, the lowest barrier to entry. Right. So you're serious. Right. And you've got to make products that people are going to use. So I think there's a big opportunity, a missed opportunity because designers want to innovate on their designs. And that therefore means that they need to innovate with products and assemblies. Um, I think I want to key in on that word assemblies real quick because architects think in assemblies as we're designing. I don't think of all the layers in a wall. I think of a wall, right? I don't think of all the layers in a ceiling. I think of a ceiling or structure or whatever those different assemblies or systems are. And so I think something that manufacturers could do better would be, uh, number one, start serving architects instead of selling to them. Right, I think that's a big one. By serving architects, you will generate relationships, and then you will have this two-way communication, and you will innovate things together. And I think that is that would be an amazing hmm. vision of a future yeah, is for you, that to happen.
1: You don't see, but that I also,
0: happen. yeah, you don't see that very much. Um, I also think though that manufacturers need to branch out of their product silo, not just into their category, but into that assembly type of a thinking and really start reaching across the aisle to other manufacturers that are commonly found in their assemblies to pull that data and that knowledge together so that when an architect or a design professional has a question, somebody can say, here it is, and it solves like five of the questions that you had. Because I think a lot of times manufacturers are thinking, it's about my product right now. And architects and designers are thinking, no, I've got 300 in this project you're just my five minutes right now, Mm -hmm. right? You're not everything to me. And so I've got to make a hundred other calls like this in the next two weeks to answer my questions. Um, Because let's face it, uh, there are two categories that architects and designers fit into for the most part. They either reuse what they've always used before because they've spent this um crazy amount of time figuring all that stuff out and they don't have time to do that over and over again. Or they go on this black hole of a search when they want to find something new. Those are at two very different ends of the spectrum, right? As far as time commitment, I either reuse what I've already done. That's zero time again, or I'm going to go down this thing, which is hours and hours and hours and hours and face it. I sell time for money. That's it, right? So the less time I can spend, the more profitable I'm going to be. So if manufacturers can solve some of those problems anticipate, I always tell my kids, man, it would be awesome if you can anticipate what I'm going to need next, right? Like, like a surgeon and, a, and an apprentice in a, in a surgery room, it's like mm-hmm. the doctor holds their hand out and the apprentice puts what they need into their hand when they need it. Cause they anticipate, they know what's going to happen next. And I tell my kids that too, if we're cooking something like in the kitchen, what's coming next, you know, we've made this before, right? So trying Mm -hmm. to get them, I want manufacturers to do that for me and say, Okay, I do the the exterior plaster, but you also need to know these other five answers to these other five questions, because we get them all the time. So Mm -hmm. be proactive about connecting the dots and anticipating before that architect even shows up, oh, my gosh, you're going to start building that relationship so much faster, and serving them is going to lead to amazing sales in the future.
2: Interesting. I went to a seminar once on on working with architects and my biggest takeaway that I, I've been preaching around here in the years since was they really encourage become the product category expert and their go to, not just on your product, but for us, it's all of roofing uh, and yeah. just position yourself in that relationship as a resource. And it sounds very similar to what you're saying.
0: I, I I totally that that is what we we actually have developed an academy on tech for the manufacturing side to make sure that everybody knows that kind of stuff because not everybody went to that seminar. Not everybody understands that. And not only that, but they're not even incentivized to operate like that. Right. Right. On the architecture side, it's the same thing. Like we've had so many bad experiences. We do everything we can to avoid talking to you guys. Right. Because I am sick and tired of getting on a newsletter email list just when I want to talk to somebody I'm tired of being sold to. I'm never buying It's And so there's, because of all those bad experiences, I'm ne- I'm doing everything I can to find the information out on your website and not talk to you when they you have the answers that I need. So there's there's a lot to do here. There's a mm. lot of work to do, and it's a we got to kind of reset the mindset of both sides of the table so that it works.
1: Wow, good stuff. Yeah, I know it's good. it
0: is a great challenge.
1: Yeah, I know that as a manufacturer, you know, when I think about construction going forward, I mean, I'm thinking about things like energy efficiency and sustainability, I think about the labor shortage. Increasingly I'm thinking about the infamous red list of chemicals that, you know, can't be used as well. Um right. what are you as a designer thinking about as you're looking forward and, and thinking about, you know, change and, and differences?
0: Uh, I think some, a few keyword kind of buzzwords come to mind. Uh, resiliency is a mm-hmm. big one. I mean, I live in California. California wildfires right. are devastating, and yeah. yet we continue to build the same thing as just was lost, right? That doesn't make any sense to me. Right. So resiliency, products that solve problems like fire resistance, um, sustainability is a huge one. Uh, a lot of firms have signed up for the AIA's 2030 Challenge, right, uh, which is a, a huge milestone in carbon emission reduction and sustainability. Um, so those are some big ones. Uh, I think you know, energy efficiency falls within that um, for sure. Uh, and, and I think part of our problem that we have is that, the again, since the incentives are to cut corners – shortcuts, right? Spend less time doing a a thing. We really have to find a way to work together behind the scenes as an industry so that we can solve those problems and get them into projects because it does lead to a better built environment in the future, a more resilient built environment, a more sustainable built environment in the future. Because, uh, you know, if you reframe the question and say, okay, for two and a half percent more money now, your building is going to be 10 times more energy efficient than a typical building in the future. That should be a no brainer for people, but they look at a higher cost right now and they're not thinking 20 years down the road, right? They're thinking about right now. So we've often find ourselves in that kind of a negotiation early on. And it's really hard for an owner to say, ah, do I really want to spend more money for a better product? (laughs) It's like, you do believe me. I know you do, but it's really hard for them to actually bite that off and, and take it. Interesting. Yeah.
1: So, so let's say I'm a contractor or a building owner and I have some outside the box idea for a, a building design. How do I best help my designer, my architect understand that? How, how's that relationship best happen? So
0: I think it just comes to you know, what we call it in architecture is a charrette. We call it that the charrette process is when people come together and throw ideas on the wall and sometimes you take them and sometimes you leave them. Mm-hmm. But it's a very hands on collaboration. and. What's interesting to me, we actually just put this stat up on our website. We've been doing a lot of research. We've been digging into the American Institute of Architects research that they've been conducting. Um, they call it uh, the architect's journey. Uh, it's also heavily around the building product manufacturing side of things. But I think it's 87% of architects want collaboration with the building product manufacturers. Mm but two out of three of them on the architect side don't do it because of all these bad experiences in the past. Right. So it's interesting, right? Because I don't think a lot of building manufacturers think that architects want that collaboration, right? but they do. And it's because of this, the the used car salesmanship type of a mentality that they're bombarded with where it's like, Nope, stay, stay, stay at arm's length. Don't come near. um, Because all I do is sell time for money. I don't have time for that. Um, That, that you you can't get this pushback. So I think, you know, it's kind of what can a manufacturer or what can a builder do to get in early with and collaborate on a project is to really, you got to do that hard work of just reaching out and following up and building a relationship so that when it's time to collaborate, it's like, yeah, let's sit around the table with some napkins, you know, and sketch out some ideas. And I think that architects love doing that. They will do that any time of the day or any time of the night. Like that's what they live for. Yeah. Are those those trace paper and napkin sketches and uh, kind of a, a just change the approach and early is better for sure.
1: Hmm. How, uh, so so I talk a lot. If you, if you spend much time with me, you see me talk about what I call the HGTV culture, and I I don't necessarily yeah. always say it in a real favorable way. Um, I'm, right I'm kind of <laughs> curious, you know, what your feelings are on how that has impacted client expectations and how you you deal with that sort of, you know, hey, I can fix this up for $1.99 and have it look amazing in two hours. It's a, it's a plague. Uh, <laughs> and what
0: I've, what I've called it in the past is a, a drive-through design mentality yeah. where it's like, you know, a customer is going through the drive-through, which is your client. They're treating you like a fast food restaurant and they're saying okay i'm gonna order i'm gonna order what i want and what what you know i think a lot of architects nightmare is when that when that person shows up with a 3d model or something that they've already designed and i'm using my famous <laughs> invisible podcast air quotes um because that's what architects are, des- are trained to do is to to ask open questions and synthesize something out of that, not just take somebody else's design and then be be a drafting service for that. Right. No, let's work through and let's make this work. So it fits you like a glove Uh, that that is kind of the ultimate experience of of working with an architect, I think. But um, that drive through mentality is I'm going to order. And then I pull up to window number one and I want my food and I don't want to pay for it until window number two, but I really treat it like it's that fast. And and that is what HGTV has done to yeah. the architectural profession, the design profession. I think it looks great from 30 feet away, but man, if you get close to one of those paint jobs, it's full of drips and cracks and runs right. and, and it looks terrible. Uh, and, and it has really messed with expectations of what, not only what the design process is like, because it looks terrible to me. That design process looks terrible. It's like uh, it's nothing that I would want to be a part of. Uh, and and not only that, but the outcome, you know, is cheap and flimsy, and it's not going to stand the test of time. It's not durable. It's not meaningful as far as a space goes, and what space can do for you and for your well being and for your contribution back to your community or society because of the well-being that it provides you. I mean, those are the kinds of things that architecture can do for people that is not something that is easy to fit into a checklist, right? It's like mental health. Mental health has a lot to do with the environment that you're in most of the day. 90% of your day is spent inside of a building. But it can affect your mental health. And because it can affect your mental health positively or negatively, then it affects how you contribute back to your community and to society or to your family, right? So um, you're not going to get that on a checklist, but it is an outcome that happens by by being a part of a a good built environment. So, man, uh, can we nail it all on HGTV? (laughs) We could try. (laughs) I grew up watching This Old House, and I have really great nostalgic kind of thoughts and feelings about This Old House because they're, and you know, like they're going to spend a whole episode on putting these legs on a table, right? They're not going to design a whole four-bedroom apartment and show you the outcome in 42 minutes, right? So uh, it's a very different world.
1: Yeah. I'm curious, too, a term that you know, we first became exposed to a couple of years ago was this idea of value engineering. I'm curious for your thoughts on that because, to me, it just always looks like uh, simply a way maybe for a contractor to, to benefit and take a project out of spec and perhaps completely jeopardize the project and the process. But I'm kind of curious to hear what your thoughts are on it.
0: Those are dirty words. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way I look we, at it, too. Yeah, it's uh, it, value engineering is neither valuable nor is it engineering, right? It's cost cutting, is yeah, what it is. Exactly. And it's usually swapping out something in the 11th hour for something cheaper, which costs the design professional a lot of time and money to go back and readdress because it, it has a ripple effect. Like right. there's no way around it. You can't swap out something that costs half the price or less for another material or or component and keep everything else around it the same it just doesn't work like that and so now all the details have to be reworked um it's a painful painful process and so again like getting back to how do you solve that is getting these people to the table early so that we are making informed decisions and setting expectations up front can we cover all of the supply chain issues that pop up in two years or all the logistics or the cost of commodities or no we can't but can we be within 50 percent of ballpark costs that would be fantastic right moving forward because an architect doesn't they don't have that pulse of information on costs like you guys do because you're in it you're talking to your subs you're talking to suppliers you know what your installed costs are you know what your markups are you're going to make a profit but we don't know any of that. We're disconnected from it. So if we can get you to the table earlier and avoid that value engineering, you know those dirty words. Oh, <laughs> I would, I would love that because, you know, our, what we say at Tech is architects like just imagine your design intent realized. Like that's wow. a simple, simple statement, and it rarely happens. It happens, right? Yeah. So if we can get people in earlier with the right information, and the right experience, and the right knowledge, that would solve a lot of those problems up front.
2: Yeah. And we would
0: never have to worry about them. We could spend our time doing
2: better things. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's obvious you're incredibly passionate about this whole process and making this better and the work that you're doing at Tech. Is that is that really what's driving it, that you're firsthand – experiences of having that design intent go out the window and, and <laughs> the, the, maybe the twice yeah. that you did see it fulfilled and wanting to get that more frequently?
0: You know, I, I've been incredibly lucky at it. Like the last like major project I work on, it was a 122,000 square foot, three story math and science building at a community college in Huntington Beach. It was over budget. And the client said, this is what we want. Like we're going to raise the budget and like that never happened. Right. Right. Uh, so, so that was an incredible experience, uh, because they understood that as they changed the scope, the cost changed and they were willing to do that. Right. Um, and our contractor was amazing. Like the construction company did an amazing job. It was super inclusive for everybody the whole way through. Um, so I have had those painful experiences of VE, like no doubt. Uh, But kind of like when you're a kid and you go on that 50 mile hike and 10 out of 11 days on the trail, it rains. You remember that one sunny day, right? Like that's the thing you remember about it. And that's that's how I am. Like I remember the good stuff. And all I want to do is apply evenly across our industries that there are better ways to do things. And the current system is broken. If we can just look up for a minute and just all acknowledge like this kind of sucks guys. Like what if we change it all together? That for me would just be a phenomenal experience and impact to have on our industry. And that's, that's what gets me up in the, in the morning
2: that's is powerful. working
0: on that bigger problem of how can we make it better for everybody for the long term. And I'm not, you know, I think a lot of tech startups are in it to just get purchased by another bigger company. Like we're not in it for that. We're in it to solve these bigger issues for our industries um, and our profession. So that's, that's why I'm doing it. I'm not doing it because I have the, the band-aids and the scuff bars, but I mean, they're, they're there and I can speak to them, which I think is great experience, but without those experiences, I wouldn't be who I am. Mm -hmm. And I probably maybe wouldn't have as much fire for this, but, um, but, those aren't the things that, that are the most memorable about the career and the, the vision that I have for where we can go together.
2: That's awesome. Hearing that story about the, the over-budget project, I, I have to think that, you know, it makes me think back earlier in our conversation and hearing the approach you take with the client and walking them through and really getting, you know, yeah, what totally. what is it you want? Because you did that is why at the end they were willing to spend more money. And I know architects don't necessarily like uh describing what they do as selling in the front end but in the sales oh, it world totally is <laughs> yeah design
0: they, is sales yeah. i i know a designer who f- will push back on that so hard <laughs> because they think it <laughs> sales is a dirty word right but it's not right like that that's what it is uh and it's uh you want to make it emotional because then it's memorable and that's what matters to people and if it just comes down to check boxes and budgets and numbers like that's not memorable and and it's People can disconnect from that and make, uh, make decisions that aren't necessarily best for the outcomes of the project. So I think for us, the challenge that any architect has is to, are they going to compromise before it even leaves the building on those types of things? Or are you going to say, no, this is the right solution. Let's present it to the client and tell them why it's the right solution and how much it costs because of that and let them decide. Like, actually trust them to make the right whatever that is for them the right decision for them based on this information instead of compromising that before it even leaves the drawing board Mm -hmm. i think is that's an internal struggle that a lot of architects have and i hope more of them will take the risk involved with presenting those ideas and really helping people understand so at least they can make their own decision on whether they want to go with it or not and spend more money or spend less money i don't know you know That's not for me to decide. It's your money. So Mm -hmm. you got to think long term, too, as a client about what you want those outcomes to be. And typically, like on the projects I'm working on, it's not like they're my my client. But what we're really talking about is our clients' clients who are actually going to be the users of the building. It's not that middle layer of administration that's ever going to be in there, right, that they're making these decisions. So we try to frame it like that too. imagine yourself as the student the day in the life of that student and what they're going to experience for their single singular university educational experience for the rest of their life. Right. And so it's those kinds of things that you kind of have to have that empathetic, you know, put your feet in their shoes kind of a a point of view when you're presenting this stuff and, you know, selling it
2: as a designer. Yeah. Universal principles of emotional engagement and whatever you're presenting. So interesting.
1: Well, this has been fascinating. You have provided a huge amount of information and inspiration and ideas, I think, for people who are getting started in construction or in design. I mean, is there uh, is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't covered um, that might be helpful maybe to someone who is just starting out in our industry? I think
0: that, you know, something that just came to mind is uh, it goes both ways, right? So I think of a licensed architect more of, and this is actually comes from my boss, but I'm stealing it. It's mine now. There you go. uh, We're licensed problem solvers. And I think we're trained. It doesn't have to be architecture. It could be a city problem, right? It could be a furniture problem. I don't know. It could be anywhere in between. But for contractors, building manufacturers also to cross the gap and come to architects as problem solvers who are really good at what you know, it's called design thinking and taking all those inputs and synthesizing it into a direction or an aspiration um, is something that they should be called to the table for to do much more often. Um, I think a lot of people use architects because they have to, because they don't understand what architects are really capable of. And, you know, if you're doing a commercial building, especially, you've got to have an architect. But if you didn't have to use an architect, would you? And that just to me shows that people don't understand the value of an architect. And so if you start to think of architects as problem solvers, which is a much more general statement, it's kind of like a liberal arts degree. It's good for a lot of things. uh, And it's really good for solving lots of different kinds of problems. So I would say, you know, parting thoughts is we both need to reach across the table more often and tap each other's experience and uh, and just their expertise, right? I, I think that would be something that could really go a long way in solving the bigger problems of trust and disconnection in our industry.
1: Great. Well... Before we close out, I want to ask you, this is completely something you're not aware of. Um, If you'd be willing to participate in our seven rapid fire questions, Um, they're simple and painless and um, maybe a little fun. Okay.
0: I love it because I'm not not normally in the guest seat on
1: the podcast. (laughs) This (laughs) has to be different for you. This is great. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Dream car when you were growing up. Oh, Ford Cobra 427. Awesome. <laughs> oh, I'm there with you. Yeah. yeah. What what surprises people about you?
0: Um that's a good question. I I you know, I'm an avid mountain biker. I have a YouTube channel dedicated to that, which is I I don't put videos out very often, but I love to go as fast as possible on a mountain bike. I think when people think of mountain biking, it looks painful, it looks difficult. You're going uphill. Like yeah, that's true, but you earn those downhills by going up those hills. And I love wow. like kind of a risk taker when it comes to mountain biking and going really fast. I don't like sitting at a desk all the time and creating content. So
1: good, good stuff. <laughs> Favorite toothpaste?
0: Um Tom's toothpaste. Yeah. I don't it's uh it's good for your teeth. There that's all I know. My gotcha. wife buys
1: it. Awesome. <laughs> what subject do you wish you knew more about? Oh, my gosh. There's so many.
0: Uh, thank God for YouTube because that's where the yep. answers are. Um, <laughs> good question. I Right now, it is uh, tuning suspension on a mountain bike.
1: Okay.
0: So it, it could be anything, any day.
1: Perfect yeah, answer. Always something. How many books do you read or listen to a year?
0: Oh, not many. That's a disappointment. I, the stack of books – you guys can't see it, but I'm surrounded I'm, by books. I'm more of a stacker love, than a
1: reader. I understand.
0: <laughs> I would love to read. And I do listen to some books. But I think uh, I, I consume content in a much more uh, disconnected, you know, content on Instagram, Twitter, uh, everywhere else instead. I, it's just that's what drives me. I, I love kind of like the of the moment kind of stuff. I listen to a lot more podcasts than I listen to books. Cool. I listen to a lot of podcasts.
1: So, cool. favorite meal.
0: Uh, favorite meal is, uh, Alaskan king crab, for sure. Yeah. Delicious. I mean, it's not a whole meal, but I could just eat that. <laughs> good, good stuff. <laughs> favorite uh, food? Maybe.
1: What's a pet peeve? Something that makes you crazy. You know, that's a great question. So there, there's
0: probably a lot. Of, my kids would be able to tell you exactly. <laughs> what I, <was> <laughs> I don't know. It's probably. Um, yeah, I don't know. I can't. Uh, think we of could, we could catch that head. next there's time. There's many. There's many. I'm sure.
1: <laughs> Terrible. Well, this has been great. I've really enjoyed this and appreciate your time. Um, if someone wanted to connect with you, um, how would they best go about that?
0: Um, you can follow me on Twitter at etroxel e t r o x e l and also on Instagram and you can email me at evan at tech dot com. I would love to get email from anybody who's listening.
1: Great and i uh, we'll, we will definitely be following up with you about tech also mm-hmm. that sounds That's absolutely very meaningful to us.
0: Yeah, I hope that it's a, a compelling kind of vision of the future, even though, like I said, it's not a real sexy problem. It needs to be solved. It totally needs to be solved. Yeah. It could be so much better for everybody. So i um, very happy to speak with anybody who wants to talk more about uh, a better future together.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you very much for being a guest today, Evan. We greatly appreciate it and have loved hearing from you. And I encourage everybody to check out uh, TACT and also check out Arcusbeak and TRXL's podcasts. Um, been great to visit with you today. Thanks I, so much for having me. It's been fantastic conversation. So that was pretty neat talking to Evan. I really enjoyed that. And, and it isn't very often, I don't think, that we as a manufacturer – really have the opportunity to sit down and talk with an architect where we're not, you know, on some mission. I mean, either we're selling or they're trying to get information from us, but instead just to talk about that relationship um, between product suppliers, even contractors and architects. And I think a lot of the things Evan talked about, you know, really would apply to any of our contractor listeners out there as well. Um, Everyone always talks about, gosh, I want to tap into architects. I'd like to get more exposure to architects. Um, But yet, I think so often their thought is, I just want to go in and sell them something. And yet, you know, here he is saying, that isn't really what we need or isn't what we want. And and sometimes if you try to do that to us too much, we're going to flat out try to avoid you. Um, so I thought that was neat. But, you know, sitting in your seat as, as sales manager of a manufacturer, um, what are some of the things you kind of heard Evan say that um, would be beneficial, you think, to either to our own salespeople in the field or to contractors out there?
2: Yeah, that stat about Two thirds of architects have had horrible experiences with manufacturers. Got me thinking and make, you know, wondering about how we're doing things. And, you know, that idea of brainstorming collaboration sounds great, would be awesome to reach that point. I don't, it's going to be tough to dive into that with a cold relationship and get someone uh, around a table and just, um, into that type of conversation. So, you know, for me, I feel like we we need to understand when they come to us and we get that first opportunity to serve them and connect with them, get them the information they're looking for as painless as possible. So his, his comment that manufacturers think they have a live one on the line that is, you know, super interested in your products and want to know everything no, we're researching 300 (laughs) products and I've only got five minutes. So keeping that perspective and, you know, that, think about it. They're in the process of specifying everything from the door hinges to the roofing material to the toilet. So it's, you know, it's the whole spectrum of the building and and making their life as easy as possible. But, you know, we can get, we can get them that information, but we can still begin that process of asking questions or at least offering um, additional support and, his his comments about thinking in assemblies, thinking holistically, you know what we've been talking about for a while of being the subject matter expert. How can we uh, help them immediately? But and then also immediately offer ourselves up in an appropriate way. Of if there's other questions that at all touch our product, and here's what we're the entire scope of what we're an expert on and can bring value if you need it. And, and then see where the conversation goes from there, but um, not just beat them over the head with a, a pitch uh, yeah. immediately or following up every three days and thinking the project has moved forward by a dramatic amount. It's, it's all a little tone deaf probably.
1: Yeah, that's good. It's yeah, it's awesome stuff to think about. And yeah, I, I'm, I'll be anxious to go back and actually watch the podcast. Sometimes as I'm sitting here and I'm kind of anticipating and thinking, I don't, hear every word, but, you know, he had some great information there, too, that, you know, they would like to have relationships with manufacturers that became ongoing, not just transactional, um, and that, you know, looked to build and to improve and and to grow. And I'd be anxious to go back and listen more to what he said there, because uh, I think as a manufacturer, that would be our dream also. But instead, we do oftentimes think of things as just being transactional, um, not, okay, This is one thing here, that, but but what can it lead to and where can this relationship grow?
2: Absolutely, ongoing opportunities. And if we are used on a project, like you said, we want to be involved early because there is expertise we can bring to the table that is going to impact the design and rather trying to fight it out later on, and we can also learn from them. So these are some very creative, innovative people um, that are probably – Looking for manufacturers to partner with who they actually think would uh, think similarly or be interested in such conversations. So, how do we position ourselves for that? Yeah,
1: and and I found a man after in my own heart who's willing to take digs at HGTV culture <laughs> and value engineering. How often does that happen? So good stuff. Well, thanks so much for being a part of it today. That was a great conversation with Evan. Yeah, thank you, Evan. Well, I encourage everyone, please watch for future episodes of Construction Disruption. We have more great guests on tap. Um, don't forget to leave a review or a comment on Apple Podcasts or YouTube. And um, until then, um, as we always encourage everybody, um, go out and change the world for someone. Make them smile. Bring them some encouragement. Bring them hope. Um, all of these are some of the most powerful things we can do to really change the world um, one interaction at a time. So everyone, thank you. God bless. Take care. Uh, This is Seth and Todd of Isaiah Industries signing off until the next episode of construction disruption.